Welcome to the DAP Project. This is Rhonda. And I'm Aaron. are Chike Agu and Byron Sanders, who met as presidential scholars and formed a friendship through a shared passion for social justice and fatherhood. We talked about their commitment to make the workforce more inclusive, Byron's sneaker habit, and of course, their first DAP. Welcome Chike and Byron to the DAP Project. We're going to have a great conversation this evening with um, two really dynamic guys. We're going to get to their background in a moment. So I've known Chike through the education space where both of us were affiliated with education pioneers in the D.C. area. And so because of your passion for education and opportunity through employment and then just your overall love for the culture, we, of course, had to have you join this conversation going on at the DAP Project. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's, a, it's appreciated. It's a huge honor. It's going to be great. So TK, in our invitation, um, we noted that we like to interview guys and their friends to create this kind of casual vibe, but also a vibe where we can really get deep on things. So you invited Byron, Byron Sanders. Can you tell us why? Who is this person? And uh, bring them in. Uh, Byron is, it's weird. I, I, I used to believe that after the age of 30, you don't make new friends. Uh, it's something that some people I know say, but Byron and I were in a very unique experience together called the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. A brief note about the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, where Chike and Byron first met. It is a competitive program that serves as a catalyst for a diverse network of leaders brought together to collaborate and make a difference in the world as they learn about leadership through the lens of the presidential experiences of George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and Lyndon B. Johnson. And uh, we met three years ago, literally in Mount Vernon, uh, looking at the house that George Washington owned with all that comes with that. Uh, and there was this guy from Dallas. Uh, I've been to Texas only a couple of times just because my wife is from Houston. And, um, you know, in a very short time, I was like, this, this is a friend, even though I didn't think I, I, I was going to find one. And so just his passion, similarly for education, the space, and also his cities is a man of Dallas. Uh, and he thinks every day about how to make Dallas better for frankly, folks who came up like he did. Um, you know, I admire him. I try and be like him and I, honestly, uh, whatever. I feel down or I feel a little lost, it's helpful to talk to Byron because he helps recenter me. Uh, no, uh, number one, uh, from a you know, place of personal joy and humility, but also like centers me back in the work. So that's why I want to have him on. Well, thank you, Byron. Is all that true? Man, that's all true. <laughs> all of it. All of he also it. brought him on for his humility. You notice that, right? <laughs> it's all true. That, not a lie. I even have some extra things that he didn't read that I talked that I sent him in an email earlier today. But that's cool. Nah, man. Bro, it's all love. It's all love and yeah. completely reciprocated. Uh, it's so funny because, you know, I, I kind of agree, right? You get in this program, right? So we, we're in presidential leadership scholars. We're doing that. Everybody has an icebreaker and you got all these people with these backgrounds and stuff. And I'm like, I was having some serious imposter syndrome stuff, right? Like I was like, man, these, these, these cats, but, yeah. but Chike uh, and everybody in our class, actually Chike, there's just this, you know, this instant magnetism where you're like, nah, this dude, we, we on the same wavelength, man. And it's been that way ever since. So that's my, that's my guy right there. Absolutely. Whatever he needs, he's got for me and, and, and it's been vice versa. So it's just been an honor and a pleasure. Yeah. I was like, Chike, Chike Agu, is this uh, <laughs> yeah. nice to meet you, Chike? Chike. Yep. Yep. Chike? Yep, definitely. definitely. 
You blame that on Dallas? You saying hi, yeah, Chuck? That's, that's is is that is. Dallas? That's, that's a Dallas thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know no cheat case. Because I'm from D.C. and growing up, you know, you don't know nobody. You just know your family. And you then as you meet people outside of your family, man, just God bless you. Thank you. I just want to thank everybody who forgave me for mangling <laughs> the names. I was just a little girl from the district. I didn't know any better. But That's right. No. So um, do y'all remember your first dap when you met? Uh yeah, it was a first handshake period. Because oh, it was that's a the handshake. thing. Okay. No, but you but you it's but it's it's not like a it's not like a handshake, it's the whole thing yes. where you mm. go here, clap, there's like two pops. Yep. Oh, two um so, no, no, and then and then the, the half the brother hug, right? You went in for the bro hug from jump? The jump. first time y'all met. Jump. Okay. Jump. I mean, because that's the thing. Like it, he'd already said something. And so I heard him and you know, it's kind of I'm not going it's not like one of those rom-coms where it's love at first sight from across the room and all that stuff. But I, what I heard was a connection. I yeah. heard was a connection. Mm-hmm. And so going up and introduced, I was like, hey, what's going on? And y'all know what it's like. And I know you know what it's like. You come oh, in, on. there's a forward reach where you're just out stretching your hand. Mm-hmm. Or there's the one where you're coming in swinging from yeah, the yeah. right. Right, right, right. That's when you know oh, this, this is, this, this is going to be a brother hug right here. So what, what's Coming, the, swinging in from the right as opposed to a direct stab. What's the, racial, what's the racial makeup of the cohort? So our cohort was a little weird in that um, it, was, it had an unusual amount of black men in it compared to other cohorts. What's interesting about this experience is that everyone's super accomplished, but then they do a good job of creating community very quickly. So 60 yeah. people were all like that. Yeah. Of the 60 people, we had almost 10 black men, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I'm literally going yeah, to I, I think, I think we're like eight or so, something like that. Yeah. And then we had another three or four black women, yeah. which um, if you look at the course, it is a little unusual, particularly yeah. in terms of having that many black men. And again, right. all these black men, you know, you, it's me and him. You have Tony, who runs government affairs at Comcast. You have Dr. Brian Barnes uh, saving kids out in uh, Memphis. You got... Yeah. Um, oh, Scott Hollis. Hollis, who's winning Emmys and stuff because he's a director. Yeah. You got Scott Nolan, who's, works, who's, who's working on um, safe injection sites at, uh, at Open Society. You got yeah. and all these brothers are doing things that are just amazing. So not just, again, the bodies in the room, but like the work that, that they were doing. Right. So you walk in and you're like, what the hell am I doing here? Um, let me not say anything too loud so they don't realize they made a mistake <laughs> and, get the, and get the cane and yank you. Yeah. And so what was interesting and powerful about that was to be in such an accomplished space, but also be amongst a lot of us and also feel the ability to to go and do a DAP. And let me just say this, the DAP I first remember with Byron, and I forget how this came up, but Byron said aloud an affirmation that he says to his kids every day, to the whole group, which was unbelievably powerful. And what was powerful for me was I was about to be a father. I was, I I met you February of 17. My son was born March of 17. Yeah. And so I heard that. And of course, like any new father, you're like, what the hell am I going to do? Am I built for this? Mm-hmm. I got to figure it out. And to hear that, I remember I went up to him, I went literally across the room and, I, and that was the dap that I remember. And I said, thank you so much for saying that. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for, for, for letting me hear that. Because it gave me, he doesn't know this. He gave me, it set me at ease. All right. I said, yeah. oh, you know what? I can do this. I don't know how it's all going to work, but, I'm, but I can do this. You know, and he's farther in, in the fatherhood than, than I am. But that meant a lot to me. And that's yeah. the dap that I remember. So what right. was the affirmation? We got to hear it. So, no, no, I appreciate it, man. Um, and, and the affirmation, actually, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, was was it the mission statement? Right. 
Yeah, uh, assuming it was the mission statement. Assuming, let me start. Yeah, statement. yeah, but but I but it, but I was talking about it in the context of talking to my kids. So, um, two thousand, I wrote it in two thousand seven when I was having a quarter life crisis. I had gone mm-hmm. through. Um, my family had gone through some stuff. I had gone through some stuff earlier on, and I was just trying to. I was actually checking the boxes, right? Like, good job, bought a house, married, kids, and all that stuff. Everything your mama told you to do, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I was coming home at the end of the day, and I felt like a husk, I felt like an empty shell of a person. I was like, this, these things aren't lining up. Right. I went on this deep dive. Took me about a year and a half, and then when I decided, okay, write it down, that took about ninety days. But it's uh, my mission statement that has held true ever since. It's, uh, the mission of Byron Keith Sanders is to love my God with all my heart and soul, to be the husband, father, son, and brother according to what pleases Him, to work diligently and daily in my most sincere efforts to pursue my appointed purpose with honor, character, bravery, and love. And um, that's my um, that's my mission statement. It's my guiding. Stars, my North Star. Matter of fact, it's stitched into one of my one of my jackets here, right? Like, so it's actually literally stitched under character, bravery, love, and stitched yeah. over my heart. Um, I say it most days, <laughs> um, and and it it's it's kind of one of those things. It's almost like our pledge of allegiance, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's the thing that's an ideal that I'll never be able to just nail one hundred percent. Right. Ever. But it's a constant uh, ideal for me to chase. It's the thing that, that keeps me moving. But it also it helps me know what to say yes to. It also helps me know what to say no to because there's yeah. a distinct priority that's laid out throughout it. So anyway, that's I shared that reflection. I think it I think it did. I think it connected with my man. Being able to see folks like this every month, it was it was powerful. And for me, I, I'll go back to that mission statement for a second. It inspired me to think about one because I was going to, you know, my son's three and a half now. Um, my statement is not so good, but every day I get him up and something I say to him is, um, you know, I tell him about his name. So his, his name, my son's name is Kalechi Alexander Agu. Uh, you know, so my family, we are Ebos and we'll talk about that. So if you read things fall apart, those are our people um, from whence we come. Yeah. And, you know, and I tell him what his name means. Agu in Ebo means lion. Uh, you know, uh, or it can mean hungry, depending on how you, you use the word. But, you know, lion, hungry, you, know, lion. Well, you know, but a lion is king. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, that's not from me. That, that comes from people far before you. Kalechi in Igbo means give thanks to God uh, and make sure you do that every mm-hmm. single day because everything you have is not yours. And Alexander is Greek. Uh, you know, we know it obviously for Alexander the Great, but Alexander in the original Greek means protector of mankind. Mm. And that's a responsibility. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to be great at, but your responsibility is to use whatever that is, he's given to you is to protect others. And so, you know, that's what I do with him every day when I put on his shirt and, you know, we play with, you know, the, the Elmo puppet that he loves. But um, being able to state those principles uh, for yourself and for your children, you know, I remember from my, from my own dad, um, there are these things that he just said over and over again that I rolled my eyes at. But now they got my life in ways I don't, I don't even realize. And so, it's, it, you know, he, he reminded me of that. And it's why I try and do that with my own son every day. And, you know, I'm probably not doing it as well as, as, well as he is, but I try and I aspire. Well, based on uh, Byron, your mission statement, TK, your son's name, uh, we can end the interview now, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> uh, no, so, we can't. So, <laughs> that that so, was an opening door. I have so many questions. Hello.
was the first time that you recall giving depth to anyone or the first time depth depth came into your way of communicating expressing oh i i'll tell you i'll tell you for me i was i was so there's there's a thing you said before which is that thinking of the dap as a um a more of african-american culture in a way that we specifically hear on this continent people of african descent greet each other but I would argue it is a deeper phenomenon of, of for people of African descent. Break it down. If, if you were to go to the village where my parents are from and watch men shake hands. Mm-hmm. The handshake. Would, yes. You yes. Man, watch men shake. Give it, us the it, details it, too. Yeah. Tell us what, they, what's the village. But in the end, it, it is uh, not simply uh, the handshake that we see in movies and business meetings. It is mm-hmm. a deep, whether it's a snap, whether, whether there's a, whether there's a back of palms, there is, um, this there is this is a tradition that goes back thousands of years mm. uh, to, to the continent from whence many of us come, mm-hmm. and um, that was the first time I saw it. And I remember someone shook my hand and they expected me to do it, and I couldn't do it. <laughs> and I couldn't do it because I was six and wanted to pretend. How did you feel? I felt really silly. Oh, <laughs> I felt man. really silly. But yeah. thinking about it now, I think you know, we'll, and, and we'll talk about this maybe more with with, with upbringing. I think I have had the. At times, what made me feel awkward as a younger child, but now I, I'm grateful for. I've generally lived in and across different communities where I am generally different from, from others. That's generally just the way I've lived my my life. Not necessarily by choice. I grew up in Central New, New Jersey where there were no cheat days. I guarantee you. Um, and when you're young, it's super awkward. Because you want to fit in. You want to be a part of a group. As I've gotten older, it I realized it forced me to learn to deal with people who are different from me, which as you try and do some of the work that's required to try and make create opportunity, that's, that's required. Um, but as a young kid, I, I, it was, there were two things. There was a one, um, you feel awkward and silly for a second, but then secondly, it made me begin to understand, particularly for, from whence my family comes. Um, wow. There's a lot here that I don't yet understand. Mm-hmm. And it made me know I, I need to understand more of that. And then also the third thing, which was at the edge of my mind, which is, Hey, this looks like, how some of the guys in some of the old, I didn't know was Shaft, but at the time Shaft movies that my dad likes right. to watch, shake hands too. That's interesting. And it's why I yeah. said this is, a, it, this is a, um, a global phenomenon and one with global reach. And so I, I, wanna, I wanna make sure that, that we see it in its grandest context. identify if I could just put a pin on the the map. So this um, took place in a village in Nigeria. This took place in a village in eastern Nigeria, about a 12-hour drive east of Lagos, which is a harrowing drive, which I do every time I go back. Always an adventure. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Great. Thank you. All right, Byron, your turn. So um, I, it took me a second to to think about this. I was like, when, when was it? The first time I had I would say a black hand greeting. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't called that. But go yeah, exactly. Because when you call it, it was actually uh, with my cousin, my older cousin, Latoya, who um, taught me how to do the the hand slap yeah, from Fresh Prince of Bel Air yeah. between Will and Jazzy. Yeah. Um, and what was funny was, you know, I'm a kid at that point. This was like, this had to be 1990, 91, something like whenever the, whenever the show first came on. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I'm, I'm first grade, something like that. Yeah, I'm like first grade, kindergarten, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and we were over the house. We used to go over the house all the time after church and all that stuff. And uh, I looked up to my cousin, still do. She's she's she goes by Candace now because she she grown. Uh, and that's not you know she, she moved to a new city. She got a professional name, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Toya was like, she's like, here, come here, let me show you something. So me and my brother were back there, and she's like, I'm gonna show you how all the I don't even remember what we used to say for cool at that time, but basically how the cool guys do it, how the cool kids do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. And it took me a lot of practice to get it, but I got it. Right, right. I got it. Just like I, my mama had to, you know how it is, y'all. Like when you're teaching your kids to clap, like you have to teach your kids to clap. You do. Like we are not going to be clapping on one and three in this house. Not in this house. No. You clap on two and four. Two yeah. and four. And same situation here. And sometimes you have to hold their hands and be like, okay, so they yeah. can feel what the beat feels like. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, it's, it's not insignificant. Like this is it, like, oh no, it matters. It matters. You will not clap on one and three. No. It's like having your shirt tucked into your underwear and like you walk out like, oh no, okay. oh no, yeah, that's on ex- ashy elbows. No, all these things are, these are epic fails. Our our ancestors didn't survive. Not for that. For for 400 years for you to clap on one and three. (laughs) That's not going to happen. So anyway, we, that, that was my first, that was my first DAP adjacent experience. Well, that is delightful because typically we hear about the cool ass uncle, but you had a cool (laughs) ass. See, this is why black women are going to save the world because she set you up for success. Right. She was looking out. So, Toya, if you're listening, bless you for what you did. Um, Or Candace. Or Candace. Yes, or Or Candace. Candace. (laughs) Yes, we'll talk about that. But, Byron, um, I read that you were a self professor that you love learning and you love books and school was so great and I say this you know tongue-in-cheek because I also am I think all of us are and as I mentioned I saw some picture of you looking so smooth and so proud you had this collared shirt and this sweater and I was like "Mm, look at him I wonder if he was given dap on the playground or if he was getting (laughs) hazed so if you can kind of bring these like did Toya look at you and be like, man, I tried to help you out. What <laughs> what's going on? You know? <laughs> help us Y'all are going there. Help this us is, understand how these two things work. All things work together, right? You're being I just so want you to break kind. it down. I look like a geek. I got it. I understand that. I understand. <laughs> I would never say geek. You look very scholarly. I understand. Of course not. Scholarly. Of course not. Scholarly. Listen, it, I think black nerds have it good today. Right. Blurred. It's actually kind of cool to be a black nerd. You're blurred. Yes. There's a name mm-hmm. for it. All of that. We were just yes. nerds yes. back then. Right. And right. like, I didn't like, liking comic books wasn't like, oh, you like comic books too? It was more like, you actually just didn't say it because you didn't. Yeah. You didn't <laughs> right. Right. All right. So my mama used to dress me. I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. Um, and she was a stickler on belts. So Everything was tucked in. I was about to say it was all tucked in. Everything jerseys. <laughs> Your sweater like jerseys, was tucked in. <laughs> sweaters. Tucked in sweaters. Circulation was cut off. <laughs> Yo, my mom would make me put belts on overalls. Y'all know what it was. Yeah. And so that's where that came from. So I was living a duality as a child. I was a complete and and then I had glasses too eventually. And it was it, it was like aviators when aviators weren't like cool. And so I was an unabashed, I was just a nerd. And I was fast too. 
so I could play oh. football, and I was a really good running back. My daughter is here. Yes, dear. Oh, hello, Daddy. Hi. <laughs> sure. The usual. Mommy should know it. Um, it's a just go ask mommy. She knows what the usual is. It's okay. Cool. All right. Love you, sweet. <laughs> okay. Um, That's definitely staying. Okay. Of course. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> and then this cute little black girl is like, Daddy, what, Daddy. what do you want for um, make it shake? Like, um, so anyway, but yeah, I was I was also fast and I and really good at, at football too. So I was a nerd who also could play sports. And so mm-hmm. that allowed me to get through elementary without being like a pariah. Yeah. But I was the smart kid who could also juke people. They right. kind of balanced everything out. Yeah, it was like yin and yang. It was balanced. It, it brought right. it all together. Did, did Dap show up on the on the field at those early stages? You know what we used to do? I know in, the in, instead of Dap, I'm going to tell you what happened. We Did y'all... It, so black kids, we always jazz it up, man. We would, we would make beats on our pads. And probably the best beat when we, so we in a line, we coming out, we about to get ready for the game. Our favorite beat was, I don't know if y'all can even hear it, but I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Wait, is, is that, that like the that, beginning that, of Computer Love? Yeah, yeah, is that the Roger? Yes, yes that's <laughs> Computer Love. I was going to see if y'all knew what it was. It's exactly well, it. Fine. Oh, it for the call. Don't be fooled. This dates, this dates, this dates. <laughs> us. Okay, So I believe yeah. I believe we all attended. Uh, I know Ronda and I did, but predominantly white institutions for college, right? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. And we we found we found DAB that can be a way to make plain, you know, your cultural identity. Um, when you think of college, DAP on your college campus, how did it show up, and how did it kind of serve as a currency, if at all, for showing your identity or your cultural identity or your blackness? So that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, so I went to Tufts University, which is right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and so probably an institution about 5,000, a little over. And maybe at that point, there were maybe in my class, uh, maybe 100, maybe probably a little fewer than that, uh, black students, you know, and we, we were a crew. There was a part of the campus center that was the, around the TV. That was where you found all the black people. So for us, you know, you go to class, you know, usually, usually there was a lull between like 1130 and one, you roll to the campus center, you see who's there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you roll through and you had to dap everyone in the room. That was basically, I see you black man, I see you black woman, how you doing, keep your head up, so on and so forth. And it was this, um, I was called a silent affirmation uh, uh, every single day. Um, and let me tell you something, if you didn't dap up someone, that meant y'all had some type of issue. There's a beef. Like, there was some type of beef if you didn't dap someone up. Like, like you know, like, that's, yeah. that's how meaningful it was. And also because there were so few of us. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it was really, really important. And, uh, again, without words. And then you would sit down, see, see what was, you know, usually 11.30, so Maury's on. We're going to see who's the father, who's not. Uh, maybe Sports <laughs> Center's on. We're going to see if this is back when. This, this is 2001, 2002, so the Celtics are still terrible. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see how much the Celtics lost by, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but it was that affirmation um, every single day for folks to just kind of keep their head up in a place where, frankly, there weren't that many other people like, uh, like us. I think there was a moment in time in my professional career where I decided that 
this is me. This is how I'm going to step into this space. And people are going to meet me where I am. And so now when I greet people, you could be white, you could be Hispanic, you could be 23, you could be 65. Um, but if I get to a level of a relationship with you, we coming in swinging. I'm not stabbing. We swing. <laughs> right, right, right. I love how you call it the stab. We're adding that to the dap vocabulary. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. stab. And that's what we've come to find out. And what I've come to find out, the level of a relationship. It's, that's what it's mm. about. It's like, are we relating? You know, black folks kind of naturally relate because we got melanin in our skin and we probably have some similarity somewhere along our life lifeline. Yeah. Uh, but the relationship, no matter what your race is or no matter what your age is, kind of it's all based on that the relationship that's right man one of my best friends in the world is a guy named Dave Bombwell Dave Bombwell is a short Jewish guy from, from Scotch Plains New Jersey about a half hour outside Manhattan I've known him for almost 20 years he gave one of the speeches at my wedding um, from uh, a visage you would not expect him to be a, uh, a dap receptive uh, individual but I have, <laughs> the last time I did not dap him was probably 2003. Wow. wow. Because that's the level of relationship that we have. Like, this is like one of the guys I called when my son was born. This is one of the guys I told before I proposed to my wife that I was going to propose to my wife. And so I think the point that you're making, Aaron, about this being, if we're on that a certain level, we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and I think it's, it's, it's so important. You're right. It crosses, I think, all, all boundaries. There, there are tons of women that I, that I, that I adapt just because we are that close because we've known each other for that long. Interesting. Yeah. That but that's a really good point though. Like how I'm interested in knowing CK like how how do you make your decision who's a hug and who's a dap? So it's, it's so I will say I I you know so generally for men and and you and Barney me, me and you if I were to see you right now I would we would swing in yeah, of course you tight and we're going to do that brother hug. We going we going to do right. it. Um same way I think about one of my good friends Chrisman Chrisman uh amazing Filipino woman from Northern California and she and I talked together in Brooklyn went to some hard times as first year teachers. She actually just got married actually about a week or two ago. Um and you know I whenever whenever I see her when we can next see each other again um you know cuz we've known each other almost 15 years I'm going to you know we come in we swing and we pull in and you know, now, for now she's small, so I kind of like will pick her up and kind of put it back down. <laughs> oh, not uh, awkward anymore, huh? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but because we've been through some stuff, and generally right. that's what, what mm-hmm. I reserve that for. Who have I, and this is kind of my view of friendship, which is, you know, I won't speak for myself, but I'll speak for Byron. Byron is a very accomplished um, individual. And the, and the choice that Byron's got to make right now is that when someone seeks to have a relationship with him, he's got to do a little check in his head. Are you here for me or are you, or are you here for what you think I represent from a resume perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the question is, as you get older and you become more accomplished, and for Byron, that's been a very long, long time, it, um, it takes a little more to, to create that relationship. Because, you, because when you're young and you're broke, people want to be with you because they want to be with you. Right, right. It's pretty right. clear. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, when I think about who are my true friends, I, they're usually people that I've been through something with, whether it's members of my family, whether it's people I went to college with and you, you're going through those, those travails of youth together. I think about when I moved to New York and I was busting my ass as a first year teacher uh, in Best Eye, Brooklyn, trying to figure out how to do the best for my kids that I could. Those people who I trained with, who I, taught, who I, who I, who I rode with, like those are my people for life. I, I adapt those people immediately because we were, we were going through the, through the trenches together or people who I helped start a business with. Um, 
So to me, for me, that's like, that's my threshold right now. Like, have we been through something uh, in some way, shape or form? For me, for, for Byron and I, we went through a very unique experience together that is very rare, uh, particularly in a very tough time in the life of our country. And so that's what, what, that's what quickly got me um, over the, the you, you are called the, the uh, DAP gap. Um, but, <laughs> but oh, write that down. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. But, a quick pause to add the definition of DAP gap to the DAP project dictionary. DAP gap is defined as the time and experience necessary to progress from a handshake to a DAP. But the majority of people, um, there is a DAP gap and, and, and it takes usually a trial or a travail to kind of get over that, at least for mm, me. Yeah. I don't give, the, I don't, I don't, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I get it. I don't okay. give it out. Yeah, I, got it. That's I don't right. give it out loosely the same way you, sh- I don't think you give out friendship loosely. Right. And that it's right, something right. that's earned, but I think it, it, it's, um, not that it's a privilege to, to be my friend or anything like that, but I do think, you know, I think friendship comes with struggle. I think friendship comes with trials. And not everyone gets to go through that with you just because of the point in, that, in, in your life that you're in. Um, yeah. But Byron and for me, likely, our lives are not as, there are less trials than there used to be. There are different trials, but there, there are not That's as right. many as there used to be. And yeah. so the amount of, of opportunities for folks to go through those things with you is reducing. And to be honest, the trials you go through, you go through with your spouse, you go through with your family, you go through with people that you've known. And so just those opportunities to create those. Again, I was surprised that I found a friend like Byron when I was 35 years, 34, 35 years old. That happens more more rarely because you've kind of gone through that stuff already. a piece that um, that you slipped in Byron a few minutes ago about showing up as your authentic self mm-hmm. at work and um, you can tell us a little bit about the work that you do yeah. and the conscious choice that you made to to be authentic and to yeah. be very clearly culturally black and to say this is who I am you get the real deal every single time because not everybody yeah. makes that choice as we know no, it is. And it, it, it's actually uh, it's a it's a it's actually a skill set, believe it or not, um, that I feel like was honed uh, because it, and I, I credit it going back to growing up like young. So Oak Cliff, that's my hood. Like that's where I spent the majority of my waking hours. Um, the transition, I think a lot of black people who go to PWIs get like their freshman year. Mm-hmm. I got that my freshman year high school. So I went through that whole experience. I got proficient in being in white spaces mm-hmm. and that was a skill set. Like it's a, you, you become bilingual, right? So you, you, you go on in life and, and you keep going. And I, and I did, but along the way I learned that, that I could still be me. I could still bring me to this space. I didn't have to give that up mm-hmm. and I could bring my own humor. I could, I could bring black references um, you know, I could, I found out a way and, and I would say not everybody figures that out. Um, um, not everybody has the opportunity to get enough practice to figure that out. Right. Um, and especially in formative years. So I was fortunate in that aspect, but I also recognized I was one kid who got a scholarship cause I was in the right place at the right time. Got a bus ride from the boys and girls club. I wake up at five o'clock every morning. So I catch the bus at six thirty. Like it was a whole thing mm-hmm. that gave me that ability, but Fast forward, fast forward, here I am um, on the board about to be a 30-something-year-old chair of the board. Uh, I was chair-elect at the time when our previous 30-year CEO 
took a really cool opportunity in New York. And this, Chike, you remember, I was at the bank at this no, time. No, I remember. I remember. Yeah. We talked about this. So I was at Bank of America, uh, a vice president in the um, 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 wealth uh, management department. It used to be called U.S. Trust. It's the private bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, so working with rich people and institutions, investing money and, you know, giving advice. Well, I was on the search committee for the CEO. And so I'm going through and then it gets to that awkward moment where they kept asking the board, you know, the candidate would be like, and what's your vision for the organization? Big mm-hmm. thought. And then I would say, I would go off into this riff, right? Like I would just start <laughs> talking. Yeah. And then eventually one of our committee members, uh, she's like, now why, why aren't you applying for this job again? And I said, damn you. He pulled the Dick Cheney. That's what he did. That's what he did. That's what he did. Committee and then realized. So so one of the things that I did though in that interview was I explicitly talked about race. Mm -hmm. So I set the tone from day one that if I'm going to be CEO of this organization, one of the things I'm going to acknowledge is that the opportunity gap isn't some nebulous concept of opportunity over here. Well, who are we talking? What's the gap? Who are the people? And it's between black and brown kids and white kids, poor kids, rich kids, uh, and and middle income, upper income kids, right? So we got distinct. And in my interview, I said, this is what we actually are doing. We're actually a social justice organization. We haven't named ourselves as that. And so, Either they were going to choose me or they weren't, right? And if they chose me, I'd already laid the groundwork that this is what you get, yeah. which opened the door for me to step in as my black ass self um, <laughs> from day one. And we've been doing that ever since. It's one of the things I'm proud of. It's also very hard, mm-hmm. um, but also important. I think critical, actually. And let yeah, me, and let me, he's not going to, he's not going to, um, Try to spotlight on the work enough. Let me do that for him. If you oh go on Google and you search Byron Sanders, you will find a picture, and I'll describe the picture to you. You will just see one of his students performing. You will see Byron smiling in the background, and you will see President George W. Bush and President Bill Clinton smiling at this young man. Um, in that one picture, you see kind of the power of what he's been able to accomplish in in Dallas through Big Thought. Again, yeah. a young man who is representative of hundreds of kids who they support in, in becoming their full selves creatively and also academically and being able to attract resources from people from spaces as far away as the presidency. That's what he's done. And he's done that partially by being himself and doing what he said, which is we are a social justice organization working to close the opportunity gap that's that um, fishes along this critical line of race in our country. And so I just want to say that he won't say it himself. So let me do it. Oh, There's man. something on the website that really resonated with me, and I think is really consistent with what you're saying, you said, we don't implant the voice, the voice exists, and we create experiences that help draw that out. So that really yeah. speaks to the authenticity, the believing in who a person is that you show up and you are already a wonderful person. And we're just going to put some structures in place so that you can flourish. Sarah, and I thought that was really we amazing. We just creating conditions. Your, your greatness right. was there already. And we believe yeah. that about every single human being. And we need them to believe that about themselves. And we need the rest of society to then recognize that as well. That's what we were trying to do. Yeah.
signals to other staff members to be who they are to be authentic absolutely there have been times uh where i've deliberate i knew what i was doing when i did so when i came in that's that's also when black panther came out (laughs) um and i made up a reason for us to all come dressed as our favorite marvel superheroes um I don't even remember why. This wasn't even Halloween. This was just like... <laughs> <laughs> it was just was because... Like, uh, Black Panther's coming out, so... <laughs> Wakanda forever. <laughs> um, yeah, Wakanda forever. Um, but yeah, it, and I wanted to do that because there's a classic thing that happens in nonprofits, especially nonprofits that are serving uh, Black and Brown communities and poor communities. You, um, the further up you go, the wider it gets. Right. right. Um, starting at the board, then the CEO and C-suite, and then blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Usually the, the darker you are, the, the closer to front lines you're working. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's actually the dynamic that exists in our organization as well, or certainly did when I got there, starting to change because we were deliberately changing it. But to your point, though, we already had a lot of people of color who worked for the organization. But I think a lot of times um, because they either didn't relate to the people in the C-suite or, you know, some of the things that I would hear was that, you know, I could just be me. <laughs> I can be country. I can mm-hmm. be, you know, uh, my, we got a couple people from Louisiana and they loud as hell. And, and, and then when, you know, Whenever the Saints win, they, you know, it's who that, who that, it's who that, who that, who that nation comes out. Right. Who that nation, there they go, there they go. Like, we know who that, we got it, yeah. But, you know, people are, people are being them, um, and that matters. Uh, and, and I would say, though, that's an important step, but there's so much more depth that we have to go through in order to make ourselves truly an anti-racist organization. That's the other part that I will say, that you don't get there just by hiring a black, CEO right. Right. Um, or right. black leader. There's a yeah. lot of work that we have to do to to dismantle uh, racist structures, white dominant culture mm-hmm. um, in our own organization, and um, and 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 just getting representation doesn't doesn't fix. It. justice work looks a little different. It doesn't, it doesn't, in the sense of, um, you know, I've spent probably the last kind of 15 years working in this space, kind of a, the meeting of kind of skills and economic opportunity, which we now really call future of work. That's, that's where I spend really my, my time thinking. And um, one of the, and many of the dynamics that Byron describes are very true. And one of the things I usually say about the future of work conversation is that generally the conversation around difference, race, um, the fissures in our country and the conversation about the changing economy, increasing prosperity, they're had very separately. The challenge is, and actually COVID has helped here a little bit, is that they need to be had together. Meaning mm-hmm. um, the conversation about, and I, you know, and Byron, you and I have had this conversation before. Um, you have one third of American jobs that can be in the next, call it 10 to 15 years, replaced by some type of automation. You have another 30% of jobs that will be changed very quickly by automation. 
in ways that are so quick that workers won't be able to adjust. So you have 60% of American jobs that are at some type of risk, either of change or being obviated entirely. The people who hold those jobs are not just representative of the population. They are disproportionately black. They are disproportionately brown. They're disproportionately women. They're disproportionately poor. They're disproportionately people who are first-generation college students. And so we have to name that, number one. And so if you go, and I'm, you know, and I'm writing some work on this now, um, if you go to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, Article 23A, there is a right to earn a wage. That is a human right in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so what you have, if we don't do anything, will be the systematic deprivation of the human right to take care of yourself and your family along the lines of race in this country. That's it. Right. So now let's lay on the economic part. And I'm putting on my old corporate hat, which is the populations who are most at risk of being displaced by the coming changes will be the majority of our workforce in 20 years. So I always say the workers that we need tomorrow are the workers that we're failing today. And again, along the lines of race and every other line of difference and inequality in our society. So that's the question that I've been obsessed with for a very long time. And I think finally, um, the discourse has, has kind of gotten there. So a lot of my work, you know, Byron with this amazing organization is able to serve a discrete uh, and growing group of students in Dallas on a regular basis. A lot of the work that I've always done, we would call broadly collective impact, which is basically how do you, stri- how do you accept that no one organization can solve the problem? Therefore, we got to bring people together who normally wouldn't work together to solve it. And so I've generally, in terms of a function, um, been uh, spending my time getting people who don't normally work together to work together. So I think about when I first met Byron, I was working on the digital divide, making sure that people had the internet. And people told me, people don't need that. It's crazy. And now <laughs> we see how critical They played themselves. They played themselves. <laughs> we, we are sitting here now talking about, um, you know, so right now I'm the head of economic mobility pathways at an organization called the Education Design Lab. I lead an effort called the Community College Growth Engine Fund, which is focused on how do we use community colleges, which, by the way, produce the majority of American undergraduates, which most people don't know, which produce the majority of undergraduates of color in this country, right. and which, by the way, are as, almost as ubiquitous as Walmart in almost every community in this country. Let's use them to try and get people back to work. And when we say people, let's be clear, clear who we mean. Yeah. We're talking about generally black and brown people who have been historically locked out of the labor market, locked out of jobs in growing fields, and who really got hammered during COVID. The essential yeah. workers who are putting their bodies on the line every single day or whose jobs were, frankly, hey, sorry, we have to furlough you. We don't have a place yeah. for you anymore. So when we talk about this work, but again, future of work, and I, I go to lots of, or I used to before COVID, there are lots of think tank uh, events about this concept. Let's talk about who we're talking about. And so right now, what I have to do is I go and I work with, talk about Prince George's County Community College, which is right uh, near me in Prince George's County. It's about going to someone like them and getting them to sit across the table from someone like Kaiser. Permanente, who's hiring, and getting Kaiser Permanente to be very clear about what exactly the skills are that they need for someone to work there. And if Prince George's Community College can deliver that, can you recognize that Jamal, who may not have the degree or the breeding that you're used to, has a place in your organization? One, because it's actually good for you because you have jobs that you need filled. You having a job open for another month or another two months hurts your bottom line. And also it is the right thing to do for the community that you seek to serve. And so a lot of my day is, and this is where some of my upbringing actually is helpful. I'm used to dealing with people who are not like me. It's just the nature of how I grew up. And it's useful in these settings because you got corporations who are like, look, I'm trying to make money. You have community colleges who are like, look, I'm here to serve my community. Yeah. And trying to get them at times to see the synergy between their two objectives um, is, I think, on my best days when I'm able to do well.
that you called our fictional character Jamal. How do you convince Jamal that he will feel comfortable working at Kaiser? How do you get him or how do you deal with this tension that he might experience that um, that Byron is creating at Big Thought to help Jamal fit in so that he can be successful at Kaiser? So, so part of it is, is that the, the first conversation is not really with Jamal. The first conversation is with Kaiser. And mm. do you teach them, do you teach Kaiser how to dap or how to recognize it? You tell them, you tell them it's not actually a terrorist fist bump? <laughs> so those, 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 I find those things are helpful, but the, but the whole goal is number one, you just can't hire Jamal. Mm-hmm. Number one, yeah. ideally we see this in every, again, to the extent that you can create communities and, and groups within your organization, the better mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're going to be. Number two, you can, and there's this whole DNI conversation, diversity and inclusion. Diversity, which generally is defined as the presence of, the, of uh, bodies of color, people forget the I part, which is how do you change your organization to be inclusive, or I will go further and say truly anti-racist, so that they wow. have a place. And you're not just doing this because it's the right thing. You are doing this because they have something to add, and you are a more effective organization because they're there. You see this again and again in every single bit of research. The more diverse an organization, the better it performs. I don't care if you look at return on assets. I don't care if you look at um, profit growth from year to year. But um, that's the key. There are things that they have to do to change first. And then, I'm going to be frank, I think about my home county of Prince George's. We have a, an unemployment rate that's usually two points above the Maryland average. If mm-hmm. Maryland average is at seven, they're at nine. We have people who, number one, won't work, right. who will understand that, um, you know what, I may have to be, I may be Jackie Robinson here. Uh, someone's got to be first and it may be me. <laughs> I'm willing to do that because I got to take care of my family. The question is, yeah. how do you make sure Jackie Robinson isn't the only person who gets on the Dodgers? And how do you there make you sure go. that the people who come after him or her, that um, there can be more? Uh, and so that, I think, is, is the conversation. I'll be frank. I don't see any lack of willingness for the people that we, that we serve. You know what? I'll, I'll brave what comes. The question is, can you get folks, um, and I see this slowly at places, uh, at some of these large employers, because number one, they're like, I can't fill my jobs. Forget being right and doing good. I need to fill these roles and therefore I have to do things differently. We're, 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 we're beginning to see that. And then secondly, um, can you get them to, um, how will I say this? I'm trying to pick, pick my words precisely here. No, say it, to, tell it true. No, no, I'm trying to try to say what I mean. Precise. Not to be not precise. Precise. Make it plain. I mean. We yeah. believe in making it plain at the DAP project. Can, can they see that the people that they're going to bring in who might be different, particularly from a racial perspective, make the, enti- the rest of the organization better? Right. Yes, right. Everybody dapping. Yeah, exactly. And not just. And, and, <laughs> Aaron said, nah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, definitely. Everybody. Not Aaron said, slow down. That's why women don't dap. But just the but just the fact that um, they are there are going to make the people you already have better, and that is, I think, a um, people say that, and they think they intellectually know that, but for them to see it, for them to feel it, yeah. is it, a thing, and that's the change that they need to get in a bunch of these types of organizations. Yeah, a good friend of mine just posted. I mean, we're backing into um, one of the headlines of the of the of the week. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, a minute. I mean, the yeah. four of us, the four of us know that the talent is there. The four of us know <laughs> that people want to work. But a friend of mine mentioned when he was reflecting on the headline about the Wells Fargo dude was, um, what about this white gaze that that talent pool is getting? It's not that the talent isn't there. It's just that mm. there's a white gaze looking at that talent, not giving them the benefit of all their doubts uh, for them to show and prove that they're perfectly capable of doing these jobs that you say we're not qualified for. I mean, By- Byron, I can take it. You can take it. We, I, I, like, right. I have so I, many thoughts here. I got I, so I mean, many. 
So yeah. many thoughts. So, so uh, the the thing that kills me is, and you, you even see it here when in in the nonprofit sector, uh, with board recruitment, right? Especially now that now that funders are starting to say, "Look, I'm not going to fund you unless you got a more diverse board." Yeah. You got to start with like that. Uh, cities are saying the same thing. You can't get contracts and if you know, if your board isn't representative of the community, and you got some organizations scrambling, and they're like, "Oh my God, um, yes." So, uh, uh, where, uh, where, where all the black people at? Though? And so we're like, um, <laughs> okay, cool. I'm glad you're asking the question. They're like, we've tried so hard over the years. I was like, you ain't tried. Have you, have you, and it's, 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 they don't know they're being insulting, but they're being so insulting. I was like, they're like, but, but it's, it's just finding the, the people who are the candidates who, you know, I was like, I tripped over five black lawyers on my way up here. Right. Like there, we have, we have lawyers, we got consultants, we got artists, we got everything. When you say you tried, what did you try doing? Usually it's the internet, right? Like, and trying to find out and they'll ask and what ends up happening is the same yep. five, 10 black people end up taking all of these positions, getting asked to do everything. I ended up being in that, in that rotation. I know this, right? I was on the merry-go-round. All right. How many boards do you want? It's not important, TK. No, 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 no. I'll no. answer it a lot. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's true. That was like, there's uh, about eight. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah, I was as of last week. I I, I reduced it dramatically this week, but I'm I was on seven last week, as of last week. Exactly. That's no man, and, but that's the thing. Like we're we're there, <clears throat> and what's and it's not sustainable. And right. and people look at us. And they're like, oh man, why you, you really got to let some of that stuff go? I was like, I would love to. I I actually would. I'm trying to, in fact. Um, but what people don't recognize is I make a name. I give a suggestion, and they're like. Uh, but you, though, I know you. We know you. We're comfortable with you. You're a known name. Comfortable. So I was like, if you only go with those of us who are already known, you're not. Go- you're missing out on all of this talent that's right here mm-hmm. and willing, willing to do this up. Well, and you were, you were damn good at it. You. <laughs> Come on, man. Like exactly. Yeah. I, I got a. I got an inside scene. Just like I was in the right place at the right time, I met the right person who knew this, and then I get a shot to do something. They're like, "Whoa, this kid's got something." Let's, you know, and then and then on you go. There are thousands like me out there, and that's the same thing that this Wells Fargo CEO has a problem with. They look at us, and I, I'm going to say something. It's going to sound it's going to sound controversial, but, um. I believe they don't think they're doing it, but they see us as the different type of human being. I'm not going to say subhuman, but kind of close to it because they're thinking that we don't have the same aspirations for our families. They're thinking we don't have the same, when it boils down to it, the same mental capacity, they'll say it's because, you know, you didn't have as many opportunities and all of that stuff. They think we don't have the same human stuff to be able to get into a place, be a thinker, creator, innovator, doer, if given the same opportunities and stuff that we were given. The problem is we don't have access to a lot of those things that give you the traditionally valued credentials. Right. But that's not the thing that gave the value in the first place ever was. 
So if you're willing to adjust your lens, not just take the Harvard person or the MIT person or whatever, be willing to look for a person, look at a person who went to community college, be willing to look at a person who might not have a degree at all, but offer something of critical value. Be willing to think outside the box. Be willing to not have to check a box on have you been incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, right? Mm -hmm. If you're willing to um, strip ourselves of the things that are quite frankly just pillars of white supremacy, then you will actually be able to see all the value that you've just been glossing over for years and years and years at a time. There's so much out there. Let's this is go. a good moment to highlight what Isabel Wilkerson is talking about in CAST to your point about being able to see outside of your norm, your perspective of what success looks like. And she really explains sometimes in heart-wrenching detail about how that construct came to be and why um, the caste system imprisons both the people who are at the top of the caste as well as the people who are at the bottom and the folks at the top are just so comfortable being there and mm -hmm. believing that the folks who are at the bottom belong there. They were born to be there and all of these other really distorted views about, um, about people. And so what you're saying really resonates with that. And you can see how it shows up in so many different um, contexts sure. there, despite how you might want it to be different. So Tiki, I think I've heard in some of your work that you try to get, um, convince people to take a risk, what they perceive as a risk. You see it as just the right thing to do, as you describe it, the future of work, that this is the direction that work is going in. On the other side of the table, those individuals might believe that it's uh, risky what they're doing because maybe they don't have a very diverse population. Maybe they hired a I don't want to call someone a diverse candidate, but a person of color, perhaps, right. and maybe that person of color wasn't successful, and so now they're gun-shy. How do relationships factor into your ability to convince people or make a compelling argument to step outside of their, I, won't, I don't want to call it a comfort zone, because I think that's being too generous, and I don't think that one should be able to stay inside their comfort zone, but how do you convince them to take that step to move in the right direction? Um, one of the first things I think is important is, um, we see, I, I, I've said this a lot when I was in industry, but um, the cost of doing nothing is not nothing. The first mm -hmm. thing I think is, the, is, is important to point out, there's a cost to what you're doing, whether you recognize it or not. I remember this from my days as a consultant, at times you have to calculate the cost of the status quo, whether it's in dollars, whether it's in brand, whether it's in something else, you've got to make that really clear. Um, and I actually go, I usually go further and say, by the way, the most risky thing to do is just to keep doing what you're doing. So you have to take that risk, number one. Number two, you have to point out the risk that they're already taking. Let's just use the example that you gave. They, I hired a candidate of color and they weren't successful. I'm pretty sure there are a bunch of white guys you hired that also were not successful. Um, yeah. you, you kept hiring white guys. That wasn't bad, but let's just be clear. Um, there are already risks that you are taking. We're asking you to take similar risks for other people. Mm -hmm. Let's just yeah. be clear about that. I do think the last thing, and Byron, you and Ashley talked about this on, um, in, in our conversation, and it was, it was about, for those of us who sit in, frankly, positions like Byron and I do, which is, um, we frankly come from, from a community that is uh, generally locked out of privilege uh, and many of these uh, cherished credentials, but we happen to have some of them. What is our role? And I, and I think I said to you, Byron, our role is kind of that of the, the doorstop, uh, which is, yeah. we get to open the door and our role is to be the doorstop. Let's keep it open. But the, the important thing is that who are we keeping it open for? 
there's a world where you simply say, oh, let's just keep it open for people like Byron and I, who have been fortunate to have get some of these cherished credentials. The key is, can we keep that door open for people who, quote unquote, have not been as lucky, do not have some of those uh, established totems of success so that folks can see their value? And I'll use a very small example from here in the DMV. I'm a member of our 100 Black Men chapter uh, here in Prince George's County. And one of the things I started because we just had a need here in the county was we didn't have enough science and technical education here in the county. We have three or four programs. They usually can serve only 10% of the kids in the school who, who want to take it. And so I said, you know what? We're going to start a coding boot camp. We're just going to do it. In fact, Byron, I think the first year I met you, we were yeah, doing yeah. the first version of that. We did 25 yeah. kids. And I remember we had a young man, Matt Hughes. I will never forget him. Senior, uh, either at Duval or Parkdale High School here in the county. And he's like, I want to work in a tech company. You know, he never worked in a tech company in his life. All his jobs had been, I work at a mechanic. I'm a delivery guy. He, he was a classic kind of hustler, but he had never had a job in a tech company. But he made a website through our program. And so we said, you know what? We're going to get you a job. And so this company, we found this company in D.C., not a single person of color in that company. Startup. They basically worked on creating bots for a number of, of enterprise clients. And I said, look, I got three folks here, including this kid who's never worked in a tech company. Take all three of them. And they actually said, if you want to take the one who actually had worked in a tech company before, you have to take the, the other two. And come back three months later, I remember I actually took them to the, to the office the first day, so, you know, set them up as it was very cool. You know, they're all 16, 17. Mm-hmm. At the end of the summer, they said, I'm going to be honest with you, that, that kid, Matt, was the best out of all three. Um, and this is a kid who wouldn't have gotten a chance, but again, on one of my you know, good days, I was able to be a doorstop and get that door open for not right. someone like me, who, who I heard, but was actually able to have someone who they normally wouldn't have looked at and give them an opportunity to kind of sit in that seat. Yeah. And that kid's yeah. going to be an entrepreneur and hopefully make a lot of money because of it and make a, a difference for himself, his life and his family. How do we, who are as lucky, frankly, as all of us are on this call, serve that doorstop function continually? I love that you highlighted that when one white guy failed, they just hired another one. Exactly. Like that thinking makes it very clear that there is underlying bias that a person should. Don't get the gaze. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that, um, that failure that was Right. Yeah. When, right. when a person of color fails, when a black person fails, that failure is essentialized to, to the entire population. Mm-hmm. When Dave fails, it was just Dave failed. That's it. Like, he failed. wasn't a good one. Right. We always right. knew that he was right. you know, a little lazy. Yeah. There is no extrapolation. Right. And that's yeah. a thing that you have to name sometimes. Uh, yeah. And it's not, it sucks you have, you have to do so. But and then to show that, you know, so and so was successful, which means that the person after the word can be successful. And by the way, just because Matt was successful, there may even be another person who fails. That is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know the way the human brain works. That first impression of a new experience, sadly, patterns the brain for how they do things going forward. And so to be able to, in some way, set up success um, yeah. is going to make a difference for that young man. But then also, hopefully, all the people who come after him and for that company. Yeah. And speaking so much to needing the environment to be changed before you bring in these folks into your company so that they can survive and thrive. So we as black men, we're, we are generally perceived a certain way as we're talking here and as we look at bios and LinkedIn's and, and uh, read resumes, you're all definitely exceptional folks. How do, how do you bridge that gap? You know how we're perceived. You know how you are. Your sex self-actualization that we kind of touched on earlier. How does that show up with you daily? I mean, so you got to break it down um, for the folks. I'm gonna break it down. So I'm holding, I'm holding a, uh, I'm holding a, uh, a shoe. These are Jordans. Um, I wear Jordans a lot because I love, 
I love them. They're, they're my favorite mm-hmm. kind. I like the ones. I like the threes. I like the fours. I like the fives. But I really like the elevens. Going back to that being authentic part and being my authentic self, I actually want to merge those ideas. This concept of the, the black guy who, like, wow, he's gone and made it. Made it. He's doing all of these different things and he's got this degree and it's exceptional. The exceptional black man, right? And in some magical. instances, the magical Negro. Magical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want people to know, especially this moment in time, there is no difference between me and, and the dude on the block right now. There's no difference, like, really, between me in the boardroom and the person who might be out on the street protesting. I need people to know that there's a strong alignment between an activist, uh, a hood cat. Hell, growing up in my own house, my brother, right? We have very different lives, and we went very different pathways. Um, And what people need to understand is that I'm not where I am because I am different and exceptional. I'm where I am because of the supports that I had access to. And honestly, the blind luck, and I call them blessings, but also serendipity, whatever you want to call it. But the things that I did not choose myself, I did not choose the mentor who told me about the school with the peacocks. They had a cool bird. And so I chose to throw my name in a hat, right? It's your lucky bird. Um, That was my lucky bird, peacocks, lucky bird. (laughs) But there is no difference between me and my normal black self and other brothers who are out there who might not have had an experience like that. We're one in the same. Uh, more and more people need to recognize that. I say that uh, as many times as I get an opportunity to, uh, because quite frankly, we need to get people outside of this exceptional thing. Like they'll look at me in a place and then a person well-meaning will be like, how do we create more of you? Like, well, God already did, so you don't have to worry about right, that. Right. What you need to do is create the conditions so that they can have the right kinds of outcomes that I had. That's my reaction to, to that notion, brother. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I agree with what, everything that Byron said. And I think about, um, you know, when I was in grad school, there's a famous old church on campus called the Memorial Church. And at that time, it's like in 2009, there was an old pastor, a black man named Peter Gomes, very legendary theologian. I used to teach at at the Divinity School, and he used to say this thing, which I've never forgotten. He was on an interview, and he'd written a book called The Scandalous Life of Jesus. And it's about Jesus, not as a biblical figure, but as a social revolutionary. And, you know, they're talking about the book. And at the end of the interview, the interviewer asked Peter Gomes, what do you think God requires of you? And initially, he gave some Bible verse and so on and so forth. But the interviewer pushed him, and he said, what do you think God requires of you? What do you think God wants from you? And he sits back, and he says, you know, do all you can with all you have, because none of it's really yours anyway. It's all on loan. It's all in trust. And so as I think about myself as a black man and the life that I'm privileged to live, um, I remember that because none of this is really mine. And so the question is, you know, going back to the book and I think about the parable of the servants and the master left and gave each of them uh, some Mm -hmm. stuff to invest. My goal is not to be like the servant who screwed up, who buried his stuff and gave the master back what he gave him. How do I grow that? Not for me. That's God took care of me. The question is, how do I do that for others? Um, Again, the door stopped for others who have not been as lucky. And I use, I use that word luck. And I think secondly, I think there is a, um, there's an essentialization of blackness in this country in that, again, let's look at other communities. Let's look at the white community specifically. There are many ways to be white, there are many different types of white people, all types of white people around the country. And that's celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a times of belief at times, even one that, that, that we may fall into where there's only one, one way to be black. 
there are many ways to be black as many ways Absolutely. to be black as there are to be white and being able to honor that and, and live it and not feel the need to be essentialized even in our own minds, I think is very, very important. Um, you know, one of, one of the great songs from black on both sides from most deaf is rock and roll. And, uh, and basically where he talks about the history of rock and roll as a black medium, Chuck Berry, Jimmy, yeah, Hedges, yeah, yeah. Simone. That's right. Um, Little Richard. And exactly. He, and basically that in popular parlance, that's a white thing and it's not. Right. And so how do we make sure that we, that, uh, that the parts of our, of our blackness that may not be perceived as such in, in the world, I don't disown. So there's a, it, when I was running one of my old organizations, there's a picture of me. I think I had to go to like somewhere for a meeting. So I'm like a full suit, no jacket. And I have these huge beats headphones like on my head uh, as I'm like going through a document. And that's probably the best encapsulation of me that you're, you are going to find. Okay. Um, so we're going to need that picture then. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find <laughs> we're it. We're going to need that picture. Like, it's me, you know, everyone who knows, you know, I dress very like, I'm, you know, someone once told me the only thing conservative about you is your wardrobe, uh, which is probably true, you know, but uh, yeah. I'm aware of those beats headphones and I'm going to listen to Black on both sides and Reflection Eternal and the Black album uh, because that is my blackness. And I think that's important. That's a power that we have to take. That was one of the coolest things about, about coming to work at Big Thought. Uh, because it's a creative organization, I have to wear like a suit suit every day. <laughs> I, I wear my J's to work, right? Yeah, like that's that's, right. that's how it is now. Because that's me. That's always been what I had inside of me that I could not always express. So our last question: um, What is your definition of DAP? Um, it's not. It's, it's not going to be articulate. It's. Um, I think it's. Um, love so deep that it can be expressed without words. DAP, in my opinion, in my description, is a physical manifestation of brotherhood. Uh, and I would say brotherhood beyond blood, brotherhood in kinship, brotherhood in wavelength, brotherhood in, in uh, uh, joy and pain. But it's a physical manifestation of brotherhood. Thank you so much for this really wide-ranging conversation is so heartfelt. We learned so much. People pay y'all thousands of dollars to to talk and you just gave us so much wisdom and expertise and just, I can hardly describe how much you poured into what the DAP project is able to offer. So thank you, Chike, so much for saying yes. Thank you for inviting Byron and for Byron to saying yes as well. To, yeah. to capture all of this, all this yeah. joy in the okay. midst of this. Thank you struggle. all for doing this. Thank, just thank you for this project. And it means you're not going to realize how much it means until a bit down the road for a lot of people that you haven't even met yet. So just thank you guys for what you do. I Yo, appreciate that. We I, definitely appreciate that. Co-sign. That. All of that. It's hard, Fish. You're a wonderful gentleman. Thank Be you. safe. Thank Take care. care. Bye. You've been listening to The DAP Project with hosts Rhonda Henderson and Aaron Stallworth. All opinions expressed in this podcast are that of our guests and may or may not be shared by The DAP Project. Follow us on Facebook. Search The DAP Project on Instagram, the.dap.project and online at thedapproject.com. <laughs>